Welcome to the National Committee's Profiles podcast. My name is Rosie Levine. I'm a program officer here at the National Committee. And the profile series, we try to give a background into the story and trajectory of people who are working in the U.S.-China field. So today we have Jesse Appel. Hello, everybody. <laughs> He's a um, Beijing-based comedian who's doing cross-cultural comedy work, trying to bring stand-up comedy or succeeding in bringing stand-up comedy to China. So we're going to have a conversation today with him about uh, his path to getting here. Awesome. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah. So um, how how did it start? Where did you, oh. So Jesse and I know each other from Beijing. Yeah. And we are actually both from the Boston suburbs. Yeah. So how did you come from the Boston suburbs and get to Beijing? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I, I took Chinese in school. and uh, in, in high school? <clears throat> I actually did take Chinese in high school, although... Uh, all of my high school Chinese accounted for one semester of college Chinese, and I couldn't take second semester Chinese in the first semester. So I, I basically kind of came on the train uh, like a lot of other people who started Chinese in, uh, in college. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my junior year, I studied abroad in Beijing. I had a great time. It was uh, not just learning the language, but also being in a new place for the first time and, and seeing how dynamic Beijing was and mm -hmm. how every day was interesting. And it made me really want to find a way to go back. And uh, at the same time, all throughout high school and college, uh, I had been doing improv comedy and other types of comedy performance. And when I graduated from uh, college at Brandeis, I applied for and was lucky enough to get a Fulbright Fellowship mm -hmm. to go over and research Chinese comedy, mm -hmm. specifically the type of xiangsheng, uh, the traditional crosstalk two-person comedy. Mm -hmm. So I uh, apprenticed to a master teacher, Master Ding Guangquan, who's the same master who taught Da Shan and um, other, uh, other foreigners that have done uh, crosstalk before. And um, after the Fulbright was over, I was enjoying it so much that I just decided to make a go at making a living out of it. And so since uh, Fulbright ended in 2013, up until now, I've been based in Beijing doing comedy. Great. So let's go back to the to the start of that. So sure. when you were in high school, I'm sure you had the choice of French, Spanish, mm. you know, German, maybe. Yeah. What brought you to Chinese specifically? Well, I really liked languages. I actually took Spanish also. I always thought it was super cool. There, there's like, like, all the words I know, there's another coded way to say them. And right. it felt really cool to be able to speak a second language. And then when I actually went to live abroad, I realized that the cool part is not just being able to speak it, but it allows you to live in a whole nother universe mm -hmm. and interact with people who you might normally not be able to do. And in China, uh, everybody is so interested and curious about um, you know the outside world that uh, you know we were greeted very openly with people that are supported learning mm -hmm. our, uh, our learning Chinese. As opposed to, I've heard a lot of languages people would just like to speak to in English and just get by. Right, yeah. Um, so ironically enough, because in China, a lot of people can't speak uh, any English or would like the idea of helping the foreigners learn Chinese, mm -hmm. um, it really helped me get welcomed as an early language learner in, in China. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, my experience studying French was... Most French people were very mean to me when I tried really? to speak French when I've I was heard, learning. I've heard that. I don't yeah. know. I feel like it's also kind of tricky because, um, as you know, as people now that are more advanced in Chinese, trying to use Chinese to do real work 
is not only difficult, it's difficult for everybody, but the systems in China are not really set up to have foreigners do real work in Chinese. Right. Mm -hmm. There are lots of things foreigners can do, mm -hmm. uh, but usually they're there because they complement the Chinese people who are already speaking Chinese. Mm -hmm. And so one of the greatest parts of doing comedy is I definitely need to be able to do it in Chinese. Yeah. And so um, getting that stage time in Chinese is somewhere that I can actually use my Chinese as in part of my job, which a lot of, a lot of foreigners never get to do. Yeah, and how do you, I mean, there's a difference between just learning the language in terms of communicating ideas or communicating kind of content, but, mm. you know, do jokes, you have to not only have content, but also the tone and yeah. the, um, the nuance. and tone, the kind of, context, yeah. culture. Right. You really have to be reading as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people say, oh, wow, Chinese is, uh, mm -hmm. but it's the, the language you never get good enough to be a comedian mm -hmm. at the language. Mm -hmm. Any comedian would would love to have a better control over their listening and their speaking mm -hmm. at any time. Right. So it's, um, <clears throat> it's about paying close attention and uh, really reading the room. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who I saw when I was learning Chinese who didn't have as great a grasp of the language, mm -hmm. but were fantastic communicators. Mm -hmm. Just people wanted to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And then there were other people who studied more potentially and, and learned the words, quote unquote, but just like couldn't really connect with people. Mm -hmm. And um, and these people had a harder time of it. And some of these people wind up, you know, diving deeper and deeper into writing and reading and stuff like that because the their person to person communication was a little bit uh, mm -hmm. more difficult. And so the good thing about comedy is you have to be able to do both. You have to write, you have to read, you have to read the room, you have to speak. And so it, I feel like it allows me to kind of know people and the culture that in the new country that I live in better because of it. Hmm. And do you have any anecdotes from maybe when you're just getting started out? Were there any, like, how did you learn those lessons? What was there any, are there bumps along the way or well, how did yeah. you establish that? <laughs> well, I was very fortunate um, from 2012 when I arrived in China until um, right up the very beginning of 2018 when my master passed away to be able to study with Master mm -hmm. Ding and, and learn how to do traditional Chinese comedy from somebody who had done it for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And his master was Hou Baolin, who is the greatest Yangcheng performer of the last 100 years and was in the first Chinese comedy movies ever filmed mm -hmm. back when, when film was new. Mm -hmm. uh, so to be able to learn from him everything from, uh, like he would refer to crosstalk, it's a two-man comedy routine, but he would refer to it as like three-way communication. The, um, there's a communication between me and you as performers, mm -hmm. but there's also me in the audience and there's also you in the audience. Right. So we have this triangle thing going on and uh, the, the acknowledgement that you, in comedy you have this weird thing where the audience is part of the show. Mm -hmm. A musician uh, you know, they can play their instrument on stage by themselves, but the, the instrument for the comedian is really the audience. Right. And so having to step out of this uh, mindset where you want to control everything and you want to prepare everything and really be able to accept that what I'm doing here today is talking with these people, uh, that mindset is really great in terms of being a comedian. And it's something that, you know, having the chance to study with such an experienced person allowed me to learn independent of even Chinese comedy. Right. Um, so, uh, and, and then in terms of the, um, you know, the normal bumps and bruises of language, I think the, uh, the other good thing about comedy that I learned is uh, you, you can't fake laughter. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas I think a lot of people who study a language, especially in China, a place where they're very supportive of people learning their language, people will say, oh, you're already so good. You're already so good. If you can order food, most people are blown away. Right. Um, but it turns out that to be a, a functioning adult in the world, you need to be much better than that. Mm -hmm. But the society there won't force you to be because they're not expecting you to speak any Chinese. Right. Um, and so how do you get over that? You need to find a place where if you're bad, you'll get shown up. <laughs> and if you're bad at a comedy show, you get shown right. up real bad. Either nobody laughs yeah. or the worst is nobody laughs and then, oh, he thought it was funny. And yeah. then we get that, that pity, sort of like pity late clap. pity clap and yeah. that's like the worst <laughs> clap ever. So um, both of those are, are notices that like it's not there yet and right. having some sort of actual touchstone to reality of whether these people are understanding you is important because you don't want the equivalent of like people like, oh yeah, 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 mm-hmm. Oh no, I didn't understand what he was saying once right, you're gone. Right, so, right. Yeah, I think those were both very important. Right, and so um, just to rewind a bit, um, I don't know if all of our listeners know what Xiangsheng comedy mm -hmm. is. Would you mind describing what that what that is? Sure, so Xiangsheng is a traditional two-man comedy style. There's a joker, there's a straight man. They go back and forth and back and forth. Uh, they're prepared routines, so it is scripted, but the routine is really more like a skeleton for the mm -hmm. script. So if you are able to improvise with your partner and you've known each other a long time, uh, or somebody sneezes in the audience, you mm -hmm. can always incorporate that into the show mm -hmm. and then get back onto the onto the script and the routine. Mm -hmm. um, it originated in the late Qing Dynasty, and then mm -hmm. ever since then it's been taught master to student, master to student, master to mm -hmm. student, uh, passed down. Uh, they actually have old routines that are from over a hundred years ago wow. that they still do today, mm -hmm. uh, but update in certain ways. So right. unlike a lot of the Western style comedy, when like when I do a stand-up show in Beijing, we'll ask people like, whose first time is it seeing live stand-up? And mm -hmm. 50 to 80% of the people will raise their hand. In mm -hmm. 2012, it was 100% of the people would be mm -hmm. raising their hand. Compared to that, the Xiangsheng audience has seen these routines. Uh, a lot of times, they've seen the routine before. They want to see how you do it. Mm. Um, and even for and there is also new crosstalk, new Xiangsheng as well. So there's um, there's a lot of creativity that's still going on in building new stuff. Mm -hmm. And who would the audiences have been for these kinds of routines in the Qing Dynasty when this was starting? So the th this is one of the most interesting things about Xiangsheng is that it's simultaneously. Uh, high class and low class mm -hmm. <laughs> because it came from the streets. It, well, originally it came uh, like adapted from different arts related to Beijing opera mm -hmm. uh, and different street arts combining into something that was done uh, for regular people. Mm -hmm. But there was, uh, there was a time when the Empress Dowager Cixi had heard, hey, there are these funny people around, come to the Summer Palace and perform for me. And uh, once it became known that the Empress Dowager was inviting these comedians uh, to the, to perform for her, it became something that the uh, the literati could also take on as the, something of their own and sort of like, uh, uh, sort of build. So mm -hmm. there's a history of uh, both high and low uh, mm -hmm. status uh, crosstalk and it, even to the, current day some crosstalk performers will be like you know xiangsheng is a linguistic performance art mm -hmm. and there are some jokes that are going to be funny but that's not xiangsheng mm -hmm. and then other performers will be like hey if i got him to laugh i got him to laugh right so um and i think everybody has their own uh spot on that spectrum yeah mm -hmm. and so how do you think that compares to the audiences who come out to see stand-up comedy these days in sure Beijing? well the stand-up comedy audience in beijing is interesting because uh a lot of them have heard of what in in uh, in Chinese, 
uh, toko show or talk show, mm -hmm. which is how they translate um, stand up. But toko show is used as a translation for anything that uses talking and is a show. Mm -hmm. So a podcast could be toko show. Right. Uh, in America, they'll say like the Ellen Show and like Chris Rock are both toko show. Right. So it's a very wide spectrum of stuff on the internet. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the Chinese talk shows and Western talk shows are very different. So even audience that has seen talk show before most of them have not seen live stand-up. Mm -hmm. And they may not even know things that we take for granted about stand-up, like the people on stage wrote their own jokes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because on the internet, everybody steals tons of jokes, and mm -hmm. who knows who wrote it. Right. Um, but in live stand-up, it's one of the things that's kind of important about American stand-up, is like if you, yeah, this is stuff you wrote that has to do with your real life, and then mm -hmm. people uh, believe it. So the audience that goes to see uh, stand up in, in Beijing or Shanghai or one of the sort of like first tier city audiences. They're people that may have heard about this online or maybe even have come to one underground show, but they haven't been watching for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are coming because they want to be the type of person who goes to a stand-up show. What, what is that type of person? Like, you know, there's sort of, it's a, it's like a newer, it's a, it's a language thing. So there's an intellectual aspect to it. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's, uh, it's underground. Uh, so, you know, who knows what might happen because mm -hmm. in underground clubs, there's a little bit more freedom than if you're going on like a giant, you know, platform in front of the whole country. Uh, and, uh, you know, you you are into something before it is blown up, mm -hmm. but it is evolved enough that, you know, you can still book your tickets online and see mm -hmm. that the, you know, see the, the performers have like nice bios and stuff like that. Right. So it also means that there's a lot of people who like, for instance, when it comes to edgy material, whether that's like political or sexual or whatever, like, you know, edgy mm -hmm. material. I feel like a lot of the audience want to be surrounded by people, surrounded by people that are laughing but not have to laugh themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, this is so interesting. I would love to do this, which is why our English uh, shows, we actually have a lot of Chinese people who love to come to our English shows because the expat audience will really let go at those jokes mm. and then they can let go. Right. Uh, but the same material done in the Chinese context, I think there'd be a lot of people who want to have that environment, mm. but they don't have the same experience of being in that environment without the foreign audience there. Hmm. Uh, I think some of that is that the the comedians need to get better. Like a lot of the comedians are just doing this for only a couple years in mm. China. But I also think a lot of that is that the uh, the challenge for the audience is to be able to open up and listen to comedy mm -hmm. genuinely. Yeah. And the performers, I think, are willing to go there. Right. If they get the laughter from the audience, they will open up. Hmm. Uh, but if they don't get the laughter from the audience, then yeah. they will have a harder time opening up themselves. So mm -hmm. I think it's a, sort of a chicken and egg who's going to step first problem yeah. of the audience and the performers both wanting to open up and be more transparent about their lives and their experiences, but mm -hmm. both being somewhat uncomfortable with doing that within the Chinese setting. So. Right. Yeah. And that's something I wanted to press on because it seems like there's a fundamental component of comedy that's somewhat subversive or mm -hmm. a little bit more um, kind of pushing at the boundaries. But, yeah. Um, in the current moment in, in China and in Beijing particularly, um, it seems like that the spaces for that are closing. So how do you feel like that environment has affected the types of, of jokes that can be told and the, the way that people laugh and sure. how that happens? Well, I think it's um, the, the main thing for the comedians is that um, they have to make a living. 
And so if you're really funny, but in a way that you know that nobody's gonna invest in your show and nobody could air it, it's not even a one joke issue. It's just like, what's your energy? Right. Is that energy positive energy? Mm. Is it, um, you know, are you moving us towards the great socialist future or away from it? Right. Um, if you have the wrong type of energy, it doesn't matter how funny you are in the underground comedy scene right now because there's no way of turning that into a living. Mm -hmm. Some people are starting to, there are starting to be some companies now that are paying salaries to comedians in hopes of getting a chunk of the stand-up market in the future. And so mm. maybe those salaried comedians would actually be able to do this better because mm. they don't need to worry show by show about selling tickets. Mm -hmm. um, that remains to be seen. But I think a lot of the people who are going into comedy are people that want to make other people laugh. And mm. if you see that these types of shows get made, those types of shows don't get made, right. uh, I don't think that they even necessarily think about it on too deep a level. It's just ingrained in the culture right now that right. there are some things you do and there are some things you don't do. So the, um, the comedians, I think, would be willing to go further, and mm -hmm. in underground shows do go further. Uh, but all of the underground stand-up scene, and to some extent even the stand-up scene that's on TV, everybody's still looking for that way of getting the the feel of that live show mm -hmm. where you know you have that energy into some sort of media product and nobody's really quite figured out how to do it mm -hmm. so i think that there's um uh and i and i think also there even though the um there is a subversive element to comedy in many ways i think it's also a very american idea that i've come across um that comedy has to be political. Mm. Americans are so tied to their political comedy that they forget you can just make jokes about having a bad date. Yeah. You know, like, uh, so in America, it feels like, you know, your your comedy and your ethos have to be aligned. Right. Uh, whereas in China, it's actually, in some ways, this can be actually a positive. Like, you can just make jokes. Mm -hmm. Here, you have to make jokes, but you also have to signal to which type of people you're making jokes. You have to do it in a, in a way that um, doesn't offend enough people that's going to get you hammered on the internet, but mm -hmm. is also edgy enough that the people who support you on the internet will like it. Right. And there's a lot of very delicate social balance in terms of doing edgy comedy in America right mm -hmm. now that is that are restrictions that are put on by our society, not by our government. Right. There they have the societal restrictions as well as government restrictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's um, everybody's always trying to find how to do it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, and I think that there are definitely, you know, it's a... It, it does seem in some ways that there's more room to maneuver when you know what the boundaries are. Where in well, the US, yeah, the boundaries the, are still pretty undefined, I think. Yeah, I think, well, I think in China they're also very, very undefined because most of the censorship is self-censorship. Right, so right. most people are, if there was a list of things you can and can't do, people would play around it. And, you know, the, the point is not really what you can and can't do today. It's, again, a lot of people are, like, looking at the energy. Right. It's like, is this energy going to work? Because if you have one joke that is not going to get aired, but the idea is good, mm -hmm. you can find an investor, you can find a partner. Mm -hmm. um, but if the idea is something that's going to, as you go bigger and bigger, hit more and more uh, resistance, mm -hmm. then you don't see people do it. Right. So like, you know, things like, um, uh, like news shows, like mm -hmm. how you interact with the media, the right. further you go down that path, the more it looks like you're trying to start uh, a fake news website. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, you know, the government is not gonna allow you to run a fake news program. Right. Uh, and they don't particularly trust or want the audience to have to pick apart what's the real news and what's the fake news because they want to have the real news on the real news channels and they don't want to have any confusion about what's real and what's fake. 
which is something I think even people here can understand, even if they don't like the methodology that they're going by it. So something like that, you know, but that's not to say you can't talk about the news. Right. You just probably wouldn't make it look like a news show. Mm-hmm. You'd probably take hot topics and put it into some sort of entertainment format. Maybe it looks more like e-entertainment news mm-hmm. than than like people at a desk. Right. You know? <laughs> and what, then what, where do you think the future is for Chinese comedy? Where is it headed? And um, what are the openings you think in the future? Well, I just like, it's even despite all the challenges, like if you just look at the numbers, there's 1.4 billion people. I think I saw an article that said something like 40 of the world's 100 biggest cities are in China and only three or four of them have a comedy club. Mm-hmm. Beijing is 20 million people. That should be able to support, you know, 20 comedy clubs doing mm-hmm. shows every night as right. far as I'm concerned. And then in the second and third and fourth tier cities, I've performed in these cities before on one-off shows. They like laughing. Mm-hmm. The jokes work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these people also want to have comedy shows and they are not getting them right now. So in that sense... Uh, you know, I think the the possibility for comedy to continue to grow and with that comedians getting paid to do more comedy and getting to do this as their career and building networks that will support good comedians, that I'm actually pretty optimistic on. But it's also tempered by this uh, by this concern about the, the way that the system for getting the talent out there works. So in China, in China, you don't get a show because you're good. You get a show because you have network connection to somebody at the station or right. at the platform. And it may be that eventually some good people also get those network things, but mm-hmm. there's not really a lot of uh, transparent process and who knows how most media companies make money. Right. Because like, I've been in the industry for years and um, you know, you'd be surprised how many of these big companies that everybody knows about under the scene, everybody knows they're just burning lots of venture capital money. Right. And, you know, yeah. so, and so, what about the yeah. opportunity for um, not just in-person shows, like live shows, but new media, live streaming, I think we, the, we chat, things Yeah, like I mean, comedy, because of that nature of, um, in a comedy show, for that for the comedy to really hit, you need to believe anything could happen. Mm-hmm. And so comedy tends to be the first or one of the first things on new platforms and new media things as they start to come out. When Douyin came out, the TikTok sort of 15-second videos, a lot of them are comedy videos. And you see a lot of actually, in some ways, the funniest comedy on you know your WeChat moments mm-hmm. or like these different apps. Um, there's also a lot of bad comedy on there. But... Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually not necessarily on the platforms with the celebrities, with the professional comedians. Right. Uh, because by the time you get to there, uh, both of the restrictions on media, but also the culture of the Chinese TV companies will mm-hmm. put an end to most of the funny stuff. It's not saying you can't get anything on there, but people watch the big shows to see celebrities, mm-hmm. not to um, not to see the funniest stuff they can think of. Mm-hmm. So I think that the in terms of the best comedy and sort of the stuff that made people laugh, I think the internet is the, the place where it's going to be for sure. And then even maybe it's even on platforms that are too small right now to be known. And then the moment they get big enough to be known, the comedians are going to migrate somewhere else. Right. So it's a it's a it's a weird game of, um, you know, this is big, that's big and and uh, figuring out how to jump from platform to platform if you're a comedian that's looking to get uh, follows. Mm -hmm. And I feel like um, honestly, I've been really slow at that. I just don't like I, I like being able to try to do the work the work in like a style better 
Uh, like for instance, you know, it, it used to be really big to do live streaming. So a lot of people would do these long two, three hour interactive live streams. Mm. And then two years later now, Douyin, like TikTok is big and right. now comedians are doing 15 second videos. And it'd be a really talented comedian who's good at doing three hour live streaming sessions and 15 second bits. Yeah. But the market wants live streaming two years ago and it wants bits now. Right. So... There is, uh, I think, a little bit of a loss of like, you know, skill is like, you know, if you if you in America, if you're good at writing sitcoms, their sitcoms may be up or they may be down, but there will always be some sitcoms to right. work on. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in China, because everything rides that wave so fast, it's hard to know what the next wave of comedy is going to look like because it's going to look like whatever the market dictates. Right. So um, we'll see. I mean, I think in the in the. Long term, though, I'm very, I'm very optimistic about the internal scene with China. I'm a little bit less optimistic about the Chinese comedy um, getting to interact with the rest of the world. Yeah, that's the next question I was going to ask. Yeah. Is, um, <laughs> we've been talking a lot about U.S.-China relations uh, here at the National Committee. That's what mm -hmm. we focus on most of all. And sure. you were here yesterday talking to us about um, some of your observations from the ground in Beijing. And um, I mean, I think the question that we're all kind of grappling with at this moment is what you know, what avenues in the U.S.-China relationship are still um, available and mm -hmm. what where can we invest our, our time and energy in, in the hopes that we can still see strong people-to-people -people exchanges? And do you mm -hmm. think comedy can play a role in that? I think so, because uh, comedy is this unique thing. Like, when I come back to America, even people who are not related to China, when they hear I do comedy in China, they're really interested. Mm -hmm. They ask great questions. They're immediately into, like, oh, are there hecklers? How does it work? Like, is there a club scene there? Like, what's it, you know, what's it like? You know, what do they talk about? You know, and these this is, you know, if you were trying to get people to talk about your research on Ming Dynasty porcelain, nobody right. would be interested. Mm -hmm. uh, but with comedy, uh, there is a there is a chance of getting people from outside the normal China sphere to listen. Right. So that's the good thing about comedy. Um, the difficulty is the same thing that a lot of media is dealing with. You know, in an ideal world, I could work for Comedy Central in China, but mm -hmm. I can't or I can't work for any really ma major media platform because they are not allowed to distribute in China. Mm -hmm. So I think there could be some sort of, you know, uh, cooperation, co-production sort of type thing, or potentially even shows that are made outside of China with a, with a cross-cultural purpose in mind, being able to get through if you have the right connections and, you know, you, all the, you know, the money worked out. The hope I would have is that we find a way to slow down this bifurcating of the internet because uh, if you think about communities that really exist across borders and across boundaries, uh, things like you know uh, sports, the NBA, or even like in English soccer. It's not um, it's not American, but like that does get across. Mm -hmm. um, and other things like uh, gaming also is a big one. There are a lot of international gaming communities where people from all around the world will be friends with each other over mm -hmm. the internet. You meet somebody from Korea, you meet somebody right. from Europe, and they're in your clan or they're in your they're in your guild or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, these are examples of really great um, real life interaction between people across cultures, mm -hmm. and it comes because of uh, because people genuinely like the product right. that they're interacting with. Uh, but if you have two separate internets and people genuine, the Chinese people genuinely like the Chinese product in the Western world or the really the rest of the world outside of the Chinese internet 
really likes the second show, mm-hmm. you're not going to have fans of the same show. So right. there was a period in the 80s when, you know, uh, you know, America's watching, like, I don't know, G.I. Joe and Chinese people are watching Huluwa and mm-hmm. there's a disconnect because mm-hmm. we didn't grow up watching the same shows. And we were going in a direction where now, like, you know, a lot of people grew up watching the NBA together or mm-hmm. they grew up watching stuff that had more in common and we're heading in the opposite direction right now. Yeah. Uh, back towards Chinese people only interacting with the Chinese shows and not having a whole lot of access to stuff outside of China and maybe you could say Korea. Mm-hmm. So the um, my hope is, is that wherever we get a chance to build those communities on the internet, we find a way to do so. It may just be more legwork, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it may also mean, um, uh, it may also mean groups, you know, taking a little extra time, taking a little extra expense, and, you know, even the most basic thing is just trying to subtitle what you're doing into Chinese and put it up. Yeah. Um, you know, and even that little basic step can mean a lot to people that are, you know, otherwise might not have seen what you're trying to do. So if anybody knows a solution to this problem, you know, leave it in the message boards because mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to do this myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I think we're going to have to end it there, but I think that's definitely an optimistic note to end on. And, you know, there's more work to be done, but I think mm-hmm. that there is a lot of um, value that shared culture and comedy can, can add to bridging the yeah. boundaries between the U.S. and yeah. China at the moment. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's something that we're missing right now because... Mm-hmm. The, this is, you know, the situation we're in now is a little bit of, you know, a couple of years ago I was saying, you know, the business is going good and we have maybe 10,000 or 100,000 people who can sign a business contract, but almost nobody that can make people laugh. Mm-hmm. And if you think of your friends, it's good to have a friend who's a lawyer in case you have right. a legal question, you can call them, but you don't want all your friends to be lawyers and not have one person who's funny in your friend group. Right. So similarly, if America and China are going to be friends, we need to really figure out how we're going to laugh together. And that is actually the antidote to this whole mistrust thing. Um, in comedy, you know, I had, I had a friend once who was going through something. Uh, she was going through like a little bit of a difficult problem. She told all our friends about it. And we, the way to help her was we started joking with her mm-hmm. and sort of like making fun of the problem a little bit. Right. And she actually was really touched. She was saying like, you know, your good friends will support you, but your best friends will roast you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think there is something to that. I think if we have the confidence to be able to uh, poke at each other a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, that it goes a long way because that's what you do with your real friends. Right. You're not very, you're not always courteous to your friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look for ways to make them laugh, and sometimes you say the wrong joke, but it's done in a way, uh, in a place of trust, not in a place of attacking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we need to get to. I think yeah. is uh, you know within the relationship is that we have this uh, trust in each other that when we make mistakes, it's not because we're out to get each other. Right. It's because we're trying to figure out a way to make this actually work. Right. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of room for improvement, but but some mm-hmm. good foundations to start with. So yeah. thanks so much for coming on and, and telling us more about your journey to get to uh, this really interesting work at the intersection of U.S. and China thank you. Uh, and, uh, at the yeah, ground level. Thank you for having me. And if you guys are ever in Beijing, check out our comedy club, U.S. China Comedy Center. We're in the Hutongs near Gulo. And if you're online, you can, uh, you can search up Jesse Appel for all the videos. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening.